in order for the covenant to be fulfilled. God first dealt with the increasing sinfulness of mankind. Mankind was living for a long set of time, and because they were, they were inventing new ways of wickedness. In God's judgment via the flood, mankind was reset, and his lifespan started to shorten. Next, after many generations, he began the nation of Israel with the calling of Abram. And through famine, God moved Abraham's family to Egypt via Joseph. Over time, Abraham's family prospered and multiplied in Egypt and turned into the great nation of Israel. And we know the story well. But as the Egyptians turned on God's people, he set in motion a plan to deliver them. Exodus 3, 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And from their deliverance from Egypt through Moses, they set out into the wilderness. God gave them his commandments to live by. After wandering for 40 years due to unbelief, and until an entire generation of Israelites had died off, save two, Joshua is about to take Israel into the promised land. And here is what he had to say to the people gathered. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Brethren, Josh was correct in pointing out their inability to obey. The disobedience of Israel would define their relationship with God for many generations after. They would follow after other gods and would abandon the true God. God would set a nation against them as well and raise up a judge to correct them and turn them back to him. Over and over the cycle would continue. Eventually they demanded a king. And God rightly determined that they had rejected him as their rightful king. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 1 Samuel 8, 7. Well, the kings didn't fare much better than the judges. In fact, a lot of them led the people in wickedness against God. Eventually, God divides the kingdom saving a remnant for himself. Wicked kings continue in both kingdoms, 
Finally, God brings both kingdoms to an end with captivity. Jerusalem is reduced to rubble. The temple is destroyed. But God doesn't leave his son in captivity. Why not? Because God made a promise. And God keeps his promises. He restores his people. But they would not become as mighty as they were. For a while he speaks to Israel through his prophets. And then abruptly he stops. He is silent for 400 years. Let me put that into perspective for us. The Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock on December 21st, 1620. In two years, that will be 400 years. Think of all the world's history from then until now. And that's the same amount of time and progress that occurred from the end of Malachi 4.6 to Matthew 1.1. When we come back into history after this 400 years of silence... Israel is now under Roman rule, just another oppression and a long history of oppression for Israel. However, now the stage is set, the peace is assembled, the time is right for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. He is not late in his arrival, and he is not early. He is right on time. In essence, all of history until this moment has been preparing for his arrival. And we've looked at Israel, God's chosen people. Their history is one of utter failure to obey. And weirdly enough, we seem to sit and deride them for failing as if we could have done any better. Let me honestly say that if it had been a part of Israel ourselves, we would have died off in the wilderness. We have, would have been swallowed up by the ground. We would have been bitten by venomous snakes. We would have worshipped golden calves. We would have set up high places in worship of demons. We would have demanded a king instead of God. We would have gone off into slavery and captivity. We would have ignored the warnings of God via his prophets. We would have done all of these things unless the Lord of mercy granted us grace. We are no better than the people of Israel. When we think that we are better, we are comparing old sinners against new sinners and declaring the newer ones saints. All of this failure could have been redeemed if Israel had recognized the Savior as he made his appearance. John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. How did Israel miss their Messiah? Why did they not receive him? The problem was that they were looking for a Messiah that was political. They were looking for a physical king to come out of David's lineage and save them from their oppression from Rome. As much as we like to criticize the people of the Old Testament for their short-sightedness, we must understand that it was one of spiritual blindness. They were blind to what they actually needed. They thought they needed release and freedom from the oppression of the people in charge of them. From the Egyptians to the Babylonians to the Romans, the external oppression was symbolic of their true oppression. Their captor was not a nation. 
the danger to personhood and property experienced under the captivity and oppression of these people groups was nothing compared to the reality of their situation. They were in captivity to sin. They were being oppressed by sin. They were being harmed by sin. And sin is a ruthless taskmaster. It is really no surprise then that when Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem looking for a place for the baby to be born, there was no room for them anywhere. Can you imagine for just a moment if the people of Bethlehem actually knew that a king was going to be born that very night? And not just any king, but the long-awaited Messiah. Do you think that somebody would have had room for Mary to give birth? You see, being wrapped up in what we believe is our real problem, and therefore blindly missing our true problem, causes us to miss Christ. And for the most part, Israel did. Let me also say this, to those looking for the Messiah, for those who were not looking for a political savior, God allowed them to recognize Emmanuel. Luke 2, verse 25 and following. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It is important for us to note that although the vast majority of people are spiritually blind, God does not allow everyone to remain in blindness. He reveals himself to who he wants. Simeon and Anna are examples of such. For about 30 years, Jesus' true identity would remain concealed until he began his earthly mission. I'm sure the shepherds to which the angels announced the birth of Christ must have thought over the events that they had experienced that night and wondered if they were really true. By the time of his ministry, Simeon and Anna were both gone. Joseph, his earthly father, had also passed. Thirty years of waiting. Thirty years is a long time for someone to wait. Yet Jesus didn't return to the lowly shepherds to begin his ministry. He goes instead to the fishermen. 
if we would stop and think about the way we might have done this if there was a misconception over our identity. I would go first to the people who could validate my identity. And in this time, those people would be the scribes and the Pharisees. They would know the scriptures the best. Brethren, at this point, I must remind you that God does not make mistakes. There was no better course of action for Jesus to take. Jesus did not goof by starting his ministry with the fishermen of the day. His birth was not a misstep of fate. I mentioned earlier that the people of Bethlehem, if they had known a king was going to be born, would have prepared for it. You know, we even see this sentiment in some of the songs that are sung around this time of year. If only we had known, we would have prepared you a better place. It almost sounds as if we are accusing God of keeping us in the dark. No, Jesus came the very way that he was supposed to come. He came in the middle of the night, in a sleeping town of little regard, to a teenage couple of nobodies, and was born in the most meager of settings surrounded by farm animals. The fanfare surrounding his birth is squandered on shepherds. The sleeping town stays asleep, unaware that God is with them again. This was God's design. It is not the way that we would want for our God to come to us. It is not the way that Israel wanted God to come to them. But this is the way that God wants to come to us. The birth of Jesus has been described as meager, dull, and dirty. But God has deemed it perfect. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In no way did Jesus' humble birth set him back for his ministry. Jesus accomplished all that he came to do, humble birth to gruesome death on a cross. The problem is not with God. The problem is not in the way that God went about his work. The problem is with the people. It has been the problem since Adam and Eve. It was Israel's problem, and it is our problem as well. Well, now that Jesus has come and fulfilled his work, the problem is solved, right? I mean, Emmanuel has been with us now. And this is part of the world's problem. There are some people of the world who believe that Jesus did indeed come and lived a life that was exemplary. They also believe that he died. And that's where they leave him, dead and in the ground. And I'm sure it was a shock to the disciples even, though he warned them that this was going to happen. In fact, where do we find them following his death? Well, they're hiding together in the upper room. The disciples still trying to understand Jesus' definition of Messiah. They went back to their old way of life. And this proves that they were also, at this time, looking for the political savior. It would take encounters with the risen Christ to truly open their eyes. There was work to be done. The first coming of Emmanuel was to make a way for a more permanent coming of Emmanuel. As with Israel, God foretold it. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his own brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the kingdom of God was being established in the hearts of mankind. This was not the, the kingdom that was expected, but it is a better one. Whereas earthly kingdoms are contained to geographic boundaries and are dependent on the strength of the lineage of their rulers, a spiritual kingdom has no such limitations. Physical boundaries change. Kingdoms are conquered or simply dissolve. And the strength of mankind is not strong at all. God's kingdom supersedes all of these problems. There are no boundaries for the spreading of the gospel. The message is timeless. People are brought into the kingdom of God and in turn tell others about Christ, further advancing the gospel. We have no earthly king that can die. We have the eternal king who reigns not only now, but forever. No one can usurp his power or take it from him. The gospel, brethren, is the continuation of Emmanuel, God with us. In a very real sense, when Christ dawns on the benighted hearts of an individual, he is there to stay. He is with that person from then on, even through eternity. John 14, verses 16 through 20. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. As with his physical birth, God directs the dawning of his Son in the hearts of those lost in sin. God often teaches by showing us the type and shadow before giving us the reality. Bethlehem, a town known for being the birthplace of King David, had faded into obscurity over time. Had it not been the birthplace of Jesus Christ, it is possible to think that Bethlehem today would be a town lost to antiquity. Its relative insignificance resembles our own. It is not the place that is special in and of itself. It is Christ who makes the place special. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And later, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us.
one of our many problems is that we are so proud. We think we are worth something. We think that there is something about us that is redeemable. But the truth of the matter is that we are simply earthen jars. It is what we contain inside that is invaluable. To further this point, consider again the stable and the manger where Christ was born and laid his head. Let's face it, the stable was dirty. The stable was non-hygienic. The stable was the home of farm animals. But for that night, that stable, dirty and non-hygienic as it was, became the shelter of the Creator. The manger that was the feeding trough for the beasts within the stable became the bassinet of the King of Glory. And this is the beauty of what God does. He changes the purpose of the common into the uncommon. There is a noticeable difference here, though. Once Christ left the manger and the stable, they returned to their normal purposes. As long as Christ is present, the container is special. When Christ enters a heart, he is there to stay. Although the container may now be an earthen jar, the beautiful and priceless treasure within will never leave. I want us also to consider the unavailability of room for Christ in Bethlehem. As Mary and Joseph went door to door looking for a suitable place for them to stay the night and to have their child, it must have been frustrating to them to go from place to place and to be constantly rejected. No room. You can almost hear Joseph pleading with people, but my wife is pregnant and about to give birth. No room. Brethren, our hearts are the same way. No room. Surely there is room enough for God in our hearts. But we say, no room. But Jesus is ready to be born there. No room. In Bethlehem, while the night was the darkest, Christ was born. In much the same way, when our hearts are black with sin, Christ dawns within. His brilliance is immediately recognizable. People can instantly see a change in a person's life when Christ has taken residence in the heart. As with Israel, the problem remains with the people. Tell me, if you don't know that danger is approaching you, what steps would you actually take to avoid it? Unless you're an overtly cautious person, you wouldn't take any. This is true of the people of the world. They are in mortal danger of their very souls, and they don't know that they're in trouble. The problem is not that Christ hasn't done his work or that it is somehow left unfinished. It is that we don't see a need for a savior. All is seemingly well with our souls when the reality is all is lost. All of our problems in every era of time can be consolidated to this issue. We don't believe God completely. We don't trust him. Subsequently, we don't obey him. From Eve, who chose the serpent's lie over God's truth, to Abraham and Sarah trying to fulfill God's promised son through Hagar, 
to Jacob and Rebekah, deceiving Isaac into blessing Jacob over Esau. To Moses striking the rock when he was to speak to it. To Israel's constant grumbling in the wilderness and blatant idolatry throughout their history. To our own belief over God's declaration that we are indeed sinners and objects of his wrath. All of these actions hinge on the belief that God has either, God has either lied to us or he has not told us the whole truth. And we choose not to believe him. The problem is not with God. The problem is with the people. Brethren, the urgency of the gospel is not because people will live a more complete life than they did before. The urgency of the gospel is not because people's lives will change for the better. No, the urgency of the gospel comes from the fact a broad road that leads to hell, happily strolling and we have precious few moments with them to show them their need, their need of a savior, their need of a substitute, their need of a sacrifice, their need of a mediator between them and a holy God who will hold them accountable for every wrong they have ever done. My friends, if there has been anything that we have learned over the course of this last year or so, it is that life is not guaranteed to anyone, saint or sinner. We as a church have lost so many. We've lost friends and family. We've lost young and old. How many more people have to die to get through to us the imperative of the command of Christ? Go and make disciples of all nations. Brethren, the best place to be is with God, period. I'm sure we can think of a great many places we would like to be here on earth. Maybe visiting with some great vacation spot, spending some time with our families, or maybe just being alone in the great outdoors. Who knows? But really, nothing will ever be as right as when the creation is with the Creator. We lost tremendous intimacy with God in the fall. We gain a lot of it back in salvation. But we fully realize and exceed what was lost in the fall by our redemption and subsequent glorification with Christ. We were designed for His purposes. We are at our best when we function in this capacity. The wonderful thing about God's plan is that he not only restores what was taken away, but he gives so much more than what was originally lost. I think most of us would happily return to Eden if we were given the chance. A blissful paradise functioning within the mandates of God, living forever. As beautiful as this may sound, consider the description of the new Jerusalem and compare that with Eden. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As good as Eden sounds to me, the new Jerusalem sounds much better. I want to go there. More importantly, as long as... As the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is still planted in the center of the garden, I want no part in it. As good as Eden was, it always carried with it the capacity for sin to erupt. Every day that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil existed, along with the command of God not to eat of it, was a day of uncertainty because sin had already been found in Satan. But some of the beauty of the new Jerusalem is found by what is not there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not there. Only the tree of life is present, yielding its 12 kinds of fruit. As there's no sin in the new Jerusalem, there is also no chance of sin occurring. The temptation is not there either. This is what God has prepared in his final Emmanuel, God with us. It gets better. God seems to have interacted with Adam and Eve differently in Eden than he will interact with us in the New Jerusalem. We get the idea from Scripture that God visited the garden to converse with Adam and Eve. Now, these visits could have been daily, weekly, hourly. We don't know. But we do know that God is not corporally there at the temptation of Eve, and his absence doesn't seem to alarm Adam, Eve, or even the serpent for that matter. But you may have noticed in the passage that we just read that there isn't any night. There is only day. Whether real, symbolic, or both, the idea here is one of permanence. God's dwelling place is with man forever. If he should say that he can only be with us for one day, then let night never come. Let the day never end. This is the best place for anyone to be. You will find no greater comfort 
anywhere on earth. To be at rest with Jesus is far better than any good I have experienced or will ever experience here on earth. Those of us gathered here today who know Jesus as Savior know this yearning. We know it well. And if given the choice to go and be with him today, and, or to stay here with you, the people we love on earth, we'd go in a heartbeat without a second thought. Lastly, I'd like us to look for a moment again at the birth of Christ, in particular, the way it is announced. Not in the dream to Joseph, not in the angel's visit to Mary, not in the angelic host's proclamation to the shepherds, but rather in the star that shone over the earth pointing to Christ. You know, God made our eyes sensitive to light. We can be in the darkest of places. And if even a sliver of light is available, even at a great distance, we can see it. Do you think this ability was designed by God by accident? Conversely, it is important to note that the best backdrop for any light to be fully appreciated for what it is, is complete darkness. And so it was with the birth of Christ. Matthew 2, verses 1 following. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There was no doubt in the minds of the wise men that traveled to Jerusalem. They came with the distinct purpose to worship the king of the Jews. The star appeared. They recognized its significance. In addition, they realized his significance. And they traveled a great distance. They found the king, and I don't mean Herod, and they worshiped him. In addition, concerning Christ, Isaiah the prophet has this to say in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. My question to you this morning is, have you seen his great light? If not, could it be that you are basking in the false sunshine of your own pride, not seeing the darkness in which you really reside? Do you struggle to understand the great love and devotion that Christians have towards Jesus Christ? Jesus himself deals with this in the following parable. Luke 7, verses 40 and following. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning to the, toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those of us who have been brought into a right relationship with God are thankful to Jesus Christ for being our substitute, sacrifice, and mediator. We do not think that we are somehow better than those who remain outside of the kingdom of God. The only thing that separates us is the grace of God. God has been gracious to us. He has saved us. He has forgiven our very great debt. And he has adopted us as children in his family. Someday, we're going to go home to be with him. The wonderful thing about the gospel is this that we can offer it freely. And I offer it to you this morning. It is this. All people are sinners. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a sinner, you will stand someday and give an account for what you have done. Ecclesiastes 12.14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Revelation 20, 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
as a sinner, you will be paid the wages for your sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You can do nothing to repay God for what you have done. He does not compare you to other sinners on some great scale. He compares you to the righteous standard of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we have already read, all of us have sinned and fall short. Jesus Christ obeyed God's complete law. He was blameless. Yet God planned to sacrifice his own son so that... Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.32 God did not spare his own son but gave him up us gave him up for us all. Jesus willingly died on a Roman executioner's cross bearing the shame and penalty of our sin so that we might have peace with God. Romans 10, verses 9 and following, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I urge you this morning to call on Christ to save you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the telling of his birth, the telling of Israel's struggles, the Old Testament patriarchs and the things that they went through, all in preparation, all to show us, Lord, that by our own standards and our own abilities, we are unable to make peace with you. And it takes God, it takes Christ to come. Thank you for your work, Lord Jesus Christ, for teaching us, revealing the Father, for going to the cross willingly, for taking our sin and our shame upon you so that we could be with God. We thank you today for Emmanuel. We look forward to the day when we will be with you forever. We ask your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your brown hymnal, hymn 560. 560. Stand as we sing. <clears throat> 